Well, I don't know about you. We all come from different backgrounds. Uh, We all have our different experiences. We all like different things. But for me, I like a really good movie. In fact, I love a really good movie. I really do. In fact, I, I remember one day, I went with a friend of mine, it was in the middle of the afternoon, we didn't even check, you know, what movies were even available, we were just driving by, and so we pulled up this movie theater, and uh, just to see what, what movies were available at the time we were there, we just happened to be there then, what movies available, and so the only movie that we saw that was available was this strange movie with a strange title, you know, Shawshank Redemption. I gotta tell you what, yes. It, I, I didn't know then to become my favorite movie of all time. I mean, I sat in that seat, and then the movie just started. And I was drawn in. I was drawn in. In fact, the, the movie went all the way by, and I just sat as the scrolling credits just went. I couldn't even move out of my seat. A story of such pain or such loss. A story of true friendship. A story of redemption. It's a story of freedom. It's an amazing movie. I love a good movie. And the reality is back in the first century when Jesus was walking and talking and living, the people back then loved a good movie as well. The only problem, of course, was that electricity hadn't been invented yet. That's a problem. Uh, acting for many of the Jewish people was considered to be an evil profession. Bad thing to do. And on top of that, real tough to come by your local movie theater. And so Jesus knew this, that they loved good movies. And so he would sit on a hillside and he would tell them one of his stories, one of his movies, one of his parables. Parable after parable after parable. And at first people would listen to one of his parables. They'd get a little frustrated because it was like a puzzle. You're trying to put it together. You're trying to figure out the missing pieces. And and you can't really see it all that clearly. And at first people were confused, a bit frustrated, because not everyone likes puzzles. Then after a while, the more people began to center, really on the central theme of that parable, the more they would learn about God, the more they'd learn about themselves, the more they would learn about what it meant to truly be a disciple. To truly be a disciple. In fact, uh, one author, he, he wrote this about the parables. In fact, an author I've learned a great deal from as I was preparing this series. He said this, Parables almost always become windows into the heart and mind of God himself. As a result, they do far more than reveal who we are. They help us know who God is. They not only expose our condition, but also point to a divine remedy. Self-recognition without divine provision would bring only discouragement. The Lord's parables bring encouragement because in them we meet ourselves and we meet our God. And once we see a bit more about ourselves and once we begin to see just a glimpse of how God sees us, we're better equipped then to take this transformational journey so that we can be like Jesus. See, that's what these parables were about, so we could become like Jesus, we could be a disciple of Jesus and advance the kingdom of God. And so in light of that, as we take a look at this first parable, i got a question for you. What does true love look like? When you see it, how do you know that that is true love? What does it look like? Well, different people would answer the question differently. Some would say it's witnessing a couple's walk on the beach. Now, that's love, they would say. Some would say it's celebrating the beauty of life. That's love. Others would say it's experiencing a marriage that lasts. That's love. 
Some would say it's embracing someone different than we are. Yeah, that's love. That's love. Some would say, of course, it's being selfless even when you're angry. And some would say it's helping someone else find their way. That's love. But what is true love? What does true love look like? Well, as we began to learn last week, uh, we began to look at this, what true love looks like. And we learned, of course, that this expert in the law came up to Christ one day with this really great question. And, and I'll tell you what, though, he did not come with a pure motive. In fact, he came with a wrong motive. In fact, as Luke recounts this story, he wants us to make sure that, that we know a lot about this guy and what he was really about. And so he says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. There's the clue. He didn't come to learn more. He didn't come to get transformed. No, he came to test Jesus with this question. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And it seems like a great question, a question from the heart. But in reality here, Jesus is confronted by an interrogator, not a true seeker. Because this theologian, what he's trying to do is punch a hole in Christ's theology. Because he believed, of course, that he already knew the answer to that question. How do you inherit eternal life? Well, you obey all the commandments. You obey them all. In fact, back then there were over 600 different commandments to obey. And many Jewish people would look at a teacher of the law and say, Well, if anyone could live by all of them, it would be him. And of course he couldn't, but he's not going to let anyone else know because in his spiritual pride, he wants to fool people into thinking, of course, that he's living that kind of life, that kind of perfect life. You see, in his world, in the Jewish world back then, uh, they believe this, that if your good deeds outweighed your bad deeds, well then perhaps God would find value in you and then you would inherit this eternal life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? I ask the question because over and over again, over the past two years, if I've had different people in my office meeting with me, some people, they, they've been in church for a long time, some people for a short time, but they came and I, I'm, I could tell that they're, they're trying to figure things out. And so very often I, I've asked someone this question, I want you to think about this. I would say to them, okay, we're all going to die. And so upon the moment of your death, you find yourself suddenly standing before God, and if God were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Well, much of the time people begin looking at the floor. Oh, man, that's a, that's a tough one, they'll say. I don't know what I'd I, I guess I would tell them I, I lived a good life. I mean, I did the best that I could. I, I wasn't perfect. I mean, there are other people who are better than me, but you know what? I, I really did my best. I, I tried not to be selfish. I tried to, like, help people. I, that was good. I mean, is that enough? And over and over again, people have stumbled around and in essence embraced the mindset of this teacher of the law. If my, if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, then somehow I am going to be found good enough by God to inherit eternal life. I want you to think about this just for a moment. Uh, it's, it's, it doesn't really make sense. Think about inheritance, how inheritance works. Friends, the reality is this. You can't do something to inherit a gift. You can't do something to inherit a gift. When's the last time that just because you did something good that you, in, 
you know, you receive an inheritance. No, the reality, friends, is inheritance is not based on what you do, but on who you know. Who are you in relationship with? Who's your father? Who's your mother, your brother, your sister, your friends? That's how you know if you're going to get an inheritance. It's who you know. And so, if God were to ask you that question, if he were, why should I let you into heaven? Probably the answer might look something more like this. You know, God, if, if left up to me, if just based on me, you shouldn't. You really shouldn't because there's nothing I'm ever going to do that's good enough that can reach really your holy standard that needs to be met here. Nothing. But why should you let me into heaven? Well, you really shouldn't. But the reason why you will is because of you, who you are. That out of your grace, out of your mercy, you saw me in my need. You saw me in my sinful condition, and you sent me, as well as everyone else in the world, a solution, a savior. And Jesus Christ died in my place. He took my sins upon the cross. And now I, I've come to him, and I said, you know what? I, I've asked for forgiveness. I've placed my life in his hands, saying, you know, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to be like you. In fact, God, the, the moment that I, I prayed that prayer and asked for forgiveness and began following Christ is the moment that your, your word says that I was made a son or a daughter. And that's why I'm going to inherit eternal life. It's all because of you. If you've been wrestling with that question for some time, I want to encourage you to talk to me afterwards. I want to help you out. Or say a prayer along those lines. Because, friends, you cannot inherit something just by doing good things. It's based on what you know. But this guy, of course, he's off track. Jesus knew it. Of course, he knew what he was up to as well. And so rather than answer this guy's question and fall prey to his deceptive strategies, Jesus then responded by asking a question of his own. What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? And now suddenly the table has been turned. As one author noted, he said, suddenly the hunted has become a hunter. Because Christ's question, of course, now is rooted in what this man knew best. This guy knew the law, the Old Testament, backwards and forwards. And Jesus knew that within the law, you could actually find the right answer. So does this guy know the law and does he know how to apply the law? So what's written in the law? Now I want you to imagine this guy just kind of rummaging around, searching through all the scriptures that he knows. And then being bold enough to say, okay... How about this? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Seemed like a good answer. Probably heard it before. Now, I don't know if you know what this guy did because he, what he did is he actually quoted, his answer is actually from two different Old Testament passages. The first part of his answer came from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. This is part of the Shema prayer. For the Jewish people. In fact, if you went to the home of a Jewish person and you walked in the front door, you'd see a box on their front door. And within that box is a prayer. It's the Shema prayer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Basically, I am to love God with everything. Everything that I have. And then the latter part comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. It calls for us to love others out of our love that we have received from God. 
And so what we have to realize is that before this event, this had never happened before. You know, linking two different passages together to answer one question. It had never happened before for anyone apart from Jesus until now. And it gives us the clue that this guy had been following Jesus from a distance. He'd been tracking Jesus. He'd been listening to Jesus. And he's stealing Christ's material is what he's doing. And so in that moment, as Christ asked that question, instead of giving the answer that he thought was the right answer, and my good deeds are going to outweigh my bad deeds, he gave the teacher the answer he knew the teacher was looking for. You ever done that in school? He said, I I think I know the right answer, but I'm not going to get past this one unless I give him the answer he's looking for, so I might as well just give it. Right? Haven't we done that before? It's what he does. So love God, love others. I want you to imagine just a smile coming over Christ's face and saying, oh, you've answered correctly. You've answered correctly. And then he throws in this twist. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. And now this guy, he's frustrated. Because his religion, his theology, his life is all about what he knows. Not about what he does. And Jesus is saying, okay, you know the right things. Now it's time to start doing the right things. And this guy is not used to doing those types of things. So now he's frustrated. He's thinking to himself, how in the world do I pull this off? I've never really done this before. How do I actually put what I know into action? How do I love others? And so with a bit of humility rising to the surface, he looks at Jesus and he says, who is my neighbor? If I'm supposed to love my neighbor, well, who who is my neighbor? And within this question, we find other questions, right? I mean, if there's a neighbor I must love, is there a neighbor I don't have to love? How do I recognize who my true neighbor is? And what's my responsibility to that neighbor? I mean, how far does my responsibility go? I mean, is it possible for me to love my neighbor too much? Is it possible for me to love him not enough? I mean, who is my neighbor? And I hope you're catching a glimpse here of this guy's frustration. Because you see, he had come to Jesus. And he had desperately wanted to trouble Jesus. But now Jesus was desperately troubling him. From one question to the next question to another question, along this guy goes until he stumbles upon the central question at hand. How do I recognize true love? Or to put it differently, Jesus, how do I love like you? I mean, I've seen you love people that I would never even touch or talk to. How do I love like you? What does that look like? And instead of simply just giving the answer, he knows that people love a good movie. They love a good story. So he tells this parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. Now, as I said last week, this was a real road that existed back then. It wasn't an imaginary road. I mean, Jerusalem sat up very high. And from Jerusalem, this road would descend. It was called the Road of Jericho, the Jericho Road. And it would descend some 3,000 feet. It's along, you know, about 17 or 18 miles long. In fact, back then, it was known as the Jericho Road, but also known as the Way of Blood. The Way of Blood. Because everyone knew... Because of the way, the nature of that road, if you tried to travel that road alone, you're going to get beat up, you're going to get robbed, you're going to shed blood. It was called the way of blood. So you wouldn't travel that road alone, you would travel it with others. 
And so as Jesus begins to tell this story, this all makes sense to this teacher of the law. I mean, he pictures the road because he's walked it before. He knows that if you walk it alone, you're going to get attacked, you're going to get robbed. So it all makes sense. And Jesus said they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, if you find somebody who's half dead, how would you go about knowing who that person is or where they came from? Well, you know, perhaps you find them in their car and they got a driver's license. Perhaps you can look at that, some kind of identification. Might tell you, but if they've been robbed, maybe it's not there. Go to their license plate. Maybe the police can look that up, and perhaps the person in that car is actually the person who owns that car. You gotta, you gotta study that for a while. Perhaps you can know through your fingerprints. That might help you find that person. Or if that doesn't help, you can put that, you know, the picture of that person up on the news at night and say, you know, we don't know who this guy is. Anyone recognize him? And somebody would call in. I mean, these, all these different ways to find out somebody, you know, the, the nature of who they are. Back then, only two ways. By how a person dressed, you'd go, oh, they're Roman. Oh, they're Jewish. No, they're Samaritan. Or by how they spoke. They would have an accent. And you go immediately, oh, they're from this region or from that region. That's the only ways. And now what we see is this naked man who's half dead, can't speak. No way to recognize him. And Jesus tells it this way for a reason, because this person becomes any person, a neutral person, anyone. This person is void of ethnicity, religion, stature, or position. It's merely a person made in the image of God that we are to love. Jesus goes on and he tells us a priest happened to be going down the same road. Now the key to that phrase is happened to be going down. Okay, so this, he is descending downward uh, down this road of Jericho. Of course, now he's heading to Jericho from Jerusalem and uh, he's on this road. He's, he's, he's doing this. Now, back then, a priest, of course, was from the upper class, which meant he would have been riding something, you know, a, a horse, a donkey or something. Because the upper class, you know, they would ride animals. The lower class, people like Jesus, they would be walking. And so now he's riding something. He just came now from Jerusalem, which meant as a priest, he had been ceremonially cleansed. That's what you do. You go to Jerusalem, you would go through this whole big ordeal in order to be ceremonially cleansed so that you could serve as a priest. And so now he's on this road, riding this animal. He is a priest. And now he's got a problem. He's got a couple problems. First of all, if the man is dead and he actually touches this guy, he will completely contaminate himself. In fact, according to the law, if he came within six feet of that guy, he would become completely contaminated. And what that would mean is he'd have to go all the way back to Jerusalem in order to be cleansed once again. That would take several days of his time up to a week It would also be very costly because part of the the whole process of this would be he'd have to find a red heifer, which was very rare. He'd have to kill that and then sacrifice that as part of this cleansing process. I mean, this was a real hassle. And on top of that, if this man was a non-Jew and this priest would actually touch this guy, he also then would defile himself, which meant he'd have to go back to Jerusalem and do everything I just told you about. So it wasn't that this priest couldn't help the man. It's just that loving this guy was costly, very costly to him. And so he's thinking about this in his mind. The question would be this, if I stop and help this man, what will happen to me? What will happen to me? 
I'll lose my time. I'll lose my money. I may lose my reputation. I might even lose my life. Because if I pause here for just a moment, perhaps the same robbers that attacked him are going to attack me. And so now he's got a choice to make. And Jesus tells us his choice. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now, as we look at that, we have to ask the question, the other side of what? The other side of what? See, we tend to think that this is a road to Jericho, and our roads, of course, are at least as wide as your driveway, right, if you have one. So if you have a guy who's dead on this part of the road, but if you want to bypass him, you just merely got to kind of go over here and walk over here, and you can bypass him. That's not how it worked on the Jericho Road, the, the way of blood. There's a reason why it was called that. Take a look here, and you're going to see the Jericho Road. It still exists today. In fact, up above the greener part there, you know, kind of the shrubbery that's there and the stuff that's growing up, you see that road? That's actually a trail. You see it? It just winds along. In fact, you know, above it, you've got a mountainside. I mean, it's above you. And if you happen to fall off that road in certain portions, you're dead. And you're going to keep tumbling down until you hit the rocks below. And so this is just nothing more than a trail. In fact, in most of the spots, you have to walk this single file. It is not even wide enough to walk it with a friend next to you. And so this man who's left for half dead, he's filling up the entire road. So how do you pass by on the other side? Well, you've got to be strategic about it. Either you would, you know, scale down and go down below and risk maybe losing your step and tumbling and then come up on the other side and then get the trail again and keep walking. Or you would scale that mountainside, climb up, and then come back down because he has to stay six feet away or he defiles himself. He's got to be very strategic to pass by on the other side. And we kind of know what this is about. How many times have you been in downtown Cincinnati and you see that person begging people and kind of annoying people and you think, okay, I got to get over there, but you know what? I'm going to cross the street over here. I'm going to walk on the other side and bypass that guy. We do it all the time. Do it all the time. And so this priest now, he's giving himself all these excuses. I mean, it's not right to waste the Lord's money to help this man. I mean, if I bypass him, perhaps no one else will notice. Anyone else there to see me? Because after all, I'm a priest. I'm not a paramedic. Let somebody trained in this deal with this mess. And all the while, the question is looming on the horizon. How do you recognize true love? What does true love look like? But one thing for sure, true love, to love problem people, it's difficult, it's dangerous, it's costly. It is far easier to just pass by on the other side. And so that's what he does. And he continues on now, and then along comes another person. And Jesus tells us, so to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. Now, a Levite, as I said last week, was somebody who helped the priest in the temple. And so he did the leftover jobs, okay? Whatever the priest didn't want to do, he had to do. A Levite was from the lower class, so he would have been walking that road. And undoubtedly, now he is behind, and he can see the priest. I just want you to think about this now. He can see the priest from a distance. He sees this half-dead man, and he has time now to think, how am I going to process this? What am I going to do? I mean, what should I do for this lonely, naked man? What are my responsibilities to him, if any? And what is the priest going to do? Is he going to do the right thing and help this guy even though it's a pain? Is he going to help this guy or is he going to pass by this guy? 
Well, after he sees the priest pass by, he knows exactly what he's going to do. He's going to pass by on the other side as well. If a priest can do it, I can do it. We kind of know what that's like, don't we? Picture yourself driving down the highway, car after car after car, and there's somebody on the side of the road. The car is broken down. I mean, there's all this smoke and stuff coming out the engine. They're standing on the side of the road. They obviously need help. And yet, what do we do? We see all the other people. They're passing by, and it kind of says, you know what? If they can pass by, nobody's going to notice me. I mean, if I'm the only one on the road, I don't look good, but I think there's all these people. And so because they're present and they're doing it, it gives me a right to kind of pass by as well. It makes it easy for us. Because for them, as, as well as for much of us and many of us, such needs, they interrupt our lives. They keep us from our agendas. And so while we see someone in need, we agree in our mind, of course, that they need help. There's no question they need help. We just hope. And if we're feeling spiritual that day, we might even pray that somebody else will help them. Because we're busy, we're important, and we're selfish. And the question in the mind of that Levite would have been the same as the priest. If I stop and help this man, what will happen to me? This is going to be a pain. What will happen to me? Now, I want you to imagine now the, the crowd that's listening to Christ. Okay, they are enthralled with this story. This is their Shawshank redemption. I mean, they are pulled into this thing because suddenly now the good guys in their culture, the priest, the Levite, they become the bad people. We love stories like this. And so now I want you to imagine the crowd. They're thinking, okay, who's the good person going to be? Because there's always a Superman that shows up. Who's that person going to be? And perhaps in their minds they thought, you know what, it's going to be somebody normal, somebody just like me. And then Christ's face gets a bit more serious. The tone of his voice drops just a bit. And he says, but, but, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. Fast forward 2,000 years and now we sit here today and we know this story as the good Samaritan. To the original audience back then, they would have had a host of words they could have used to describe Samaritans and none of them would have been good. They hated these people. I mean, the Samaritans, I mean, they, they defiled the temple. They distorted the Torah. They skipped over sections they didn't want to read or didn't like. And they, they degraded the divine worship that was there. And, of course, these people were not even fully Jewish. They were half Jews. They hated these people. In fact, take a look at this, friends. According to the Mishnah, this is the first major work of rabbinic literature which defines for the Jewish people how you are to live, how you are to treat others. Here's what it says. He that eats the bread of the Samaritans is like to one that eats the flesh of swine. So if a Samaritan gives you a piece of bread that he has touched and you take it and you eat it, it's like you're eating a pig. And the Jewish people couldn't even touch a pig, eat a pig. That was disgusting. That's how they viewed the Samaritans. The Samaritans, well, they were just equal to, to, to the way they treated the Jewish people. They hated them. They despised them. There's no such thing as a good Samaritan. But now this Samaritan man, he's traveling the Jericho Road. And when he saw him, meaning the man in need, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds. Now in this guy's mind, a very different question. Instead of, you know, if I stop and help him, what's going to happen to me? The question is this. If I don't stop and help this man, what's going to happen to him? 
And out of care and out of love, he goes to this man and he bandages his wounds. Now think about this. When you were traveling back then, you wouldn't have an extra backpack filled with, you know, towels and bandages and all this kind of stuff. And so in order to bandage up this guy's wounds, he would have had to take off his outer garment, his, his tunic. Men back then would wear two of them usually, a top one and an undergarment. He would have to take off his outer tunic, rip that thing up, and then bandage this guy's wounds. From one sacrifice to another, this guy's love goes on and on, but he's not done. Jesus said on top of bandaging his wounds, he begins pouring on oil and wine. And as soon as Jesus said pouring on oil and wine, you would have heard a gasp. (gasps) Because the Jewish people knew that there's only one person who pours on oil and wine. That's a priest at the high altar before God. And now somebody at the bottom of the totem pole conducts himself as a priest. Somebody needed to. The priest had already passed by on the other side. And so this guy at the bottom of the totem pole conducts himself as a priest. And as he pours on oil and wine over this man, this is a worship offering going up to God that is pleasing to him. And it shows us, friends, that no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, whatever you're ashamed of, you hope people don't find out about, no matter how people view you, It's possible in the eyes of God to conduct ourselves as a priest and worship him with the way that we treat others. Jesus then says, then he put the man on his own donkey, which signifies that he's a rich Samaritan, brought him to an inn and took care of him. Now think about this now. He's in Jewish territory. Uh, From Jerusalem to Jericho, you are in Jewish territory. So the town he would have taken him to would have been a Jewish town. And so now you are a Samaritan taking a half-dead man draped over your horse or whatever you got into town. How are the Jewish people responding to you right now? Probably got words for you. They might even try to beat you up. As one expert noted, he said, this Samaritan would have been like an Indian riding into Dodge City with a scalped cowboy draped over his horse. That's what it would have been like. Jesus goes on, says, the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Why? Well, because this guy would have been in the hotel there for a couple days, two, three, four days. He had nothing. By the time he was well enough to leave, he would have had to pay whatever the money was. He didn't have any money. And so if you did not pay your debt back then, you wound up in jail until you'd pay the, the fine for jail plus what you owe the person. This guy would have been stuck in jail for the rest of his life. And so what we see here, friends, is this Samaritan freely gives up two days' wages for a man he never met and most likely could never repay him. Then he says to the shop owner, look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Think about it. The robbers hurt this man through their violence. The priest and the Levite hurt this man through their open neglect. And they're all guilty. They're all guilty. Christ's own brother would later write, he says, to the one who knows the right thing to do, take this in, friends, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is a sin. It's a sin to pass by on the other side. And so now it's time to, to answer this expert's story. I mean, this question, I mean, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? 
And Jesus responds, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Now, he should have replied, oh, it's the Samaritan. The Samaritan is the one who was the neighbor, but you see, he's an expert in the law. Even if he says the word Samaritan, he feels like he defiles himself. And so he distances himself from this man. He says, oh, it's that one over there who did that good thing. He can't even bring up the word Samaritan. And Jesus looks at him and says, go and do likewise. 2,000 years have passed. And Jesus is still saying that to you and to me today. Go and do likewise. So who is my neighbor? Well, according to this parable, my neighbor is that person in need, whose need I can see, and whose need I can meet. That's my neighbor, and that's how you recognize true love. True love is demonstrated through selfless action. And so one question I just want you to consider this morning is this. Do you really want to love like Jesus? We're called to be his disciples. Do you really want to love like Jesus? Do you? Well, then start looking all around you. Because the opportunities are endless. Perhaps you just got to join a go group, put yourself in a position where you can do this on a regular basis. I don't know what the answer is for you. But the opportunities are all around us to love like Jesus. So who's your neighbor? He's all around you. She's all around you. And what does love look like? Well, for almost 18 years, she showed this church what love looked like. Over and over again, she showed this church what true love looks like. She was a good Samaritan. She really was. Well, she was here. Now, I wasn't here when she was here. I've heard all the stories. And you know what? Good Samaritans, the, the reality with good Samaritans is they frustrate people. Because good Samaritans love people radically. Sometimes it doesn't make sense what they do and how they respond. They just have to. Because they're in their mindset, they're saying, what will happen to this person if I don't help them? And so she loved beautifully. She loved radically. She loved people all around the church here. Her, her love extended to those people down in Cincinnati, those people who were prostitutes, those people who were strung out on drugs, those people who just came out of prison and jail. And still she kept showing her love to them because she was a good Samaritan. Yesterday I had the opportunity to spend a little time with her. Her name is Joni Lipsy, and here's a picture of her family. Tom and Joni were here for almost two decades. He was the pastor before me. And Joni, not just Tom's wife, but a good Samaritan. And even though her life has been defined by helping others in need over and over and over again, the reality today is that Joni, this good Samaritan, needs our help. They removed a tumor from her brain this week. And uh, there's more yet to discover, but I'll just say this from a human perspective. Her journey is not going to be an easy one. And so I want to ask us to do couple different things today. We're going to pray in just a moment. But if you know Joni, if you don't know Joni, out there in the lobby by the fireplace, there's tables there, there's cards. We've already provided the cards. Write a card to Joni. A prayer for her 
and just let her know your love for her. Take time to do that. We're going to make sure to get all those cards, the ellipses, the next day or two. Do that. Secondly, Tom asked me to share with you, it just, just open up your Bibles when you get home to 2 Kings chapter 20. 2 Kings chapter 20, in the first 10 verses you read this story about Hezekiah, somebody who was very sick. In fact, people told him he's going to die. And then another prophet says, oh, no, no, no. You found favor with God. He's going to give you 15 more years. He says, will you ask the MCC family to pray for 15 more do that. You can go to caringbridge.org and type in her name and then be apprised of everything that's going on. But as much as some of you may love her, that they're very busy, don't stop down to see them. They, they just are really taken up with everything they have. But pray for them. Write a card. And so before we close out our service, I just want to pray. Let's, let's all of us pray for Joni. Dear Father, we thank you for the story of the Good Samaritan. We thank you, Jesus, that you gave us this story, not just as a nice story to think about, not just as something else for us to learn, but that we could put our learning into action. And God, we thank you this morning for somebody who actually has done that, for Joni. For year after year of selfless serving, loving others, people that many people wouldn't even want to touch. She always receives joy in doing so. And right now, you know her situation, you know her pain, you know her health condition. And right now, Lord, we pray that you would do what only you can do. That you, the God of all peace, would minister your peace to her. That you, the God of all strength, would minister your strength to her. And Psalm 46 comes to mind again and again. That God, you are my refuge and strength, an ever-present help in times of trouble. So we will not fear, though the earth be removed and the mountains fall into the sea. For God, you are my refuge and strength. Forever you'll abide with me. Be their strength. Be hope to them. Show them your grace. And God, you are also the great healer. And God, we pray that you would touch her. You touch her life. You touch her brain. Whatever's needed to heal her. Lord, that she could go on living a long life, not just for herself and not just for her family so that she could continue to be this good Samaritan that she's been, to reach out and touch hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of people more. So we leave Joni in your hands, God, knowing that you made her, that you loved her, you care for her. And we thank you for the example that Joni has lived for us here at this church and continues to live even though she's no longer part of this church. We thank you for her life, for her witness. And may you receive all the glory and the honor and praise through this situation, we pray, Lord, in your name. Amen. See, friends, a situation like this, I think, should cause us all to just pause for just a moment. We got one life, friends. One life to live. What are you doing with that life? See, because we're so busy with our agendas and everything that we find so all-important that many times we're not even aware of it, but we're passing by on the other side over and over and over again. And so as we close out and worship here in just a moment, I just want to ask you this question, and I want you to pray over this. This week, who needs to receive true love from you? That person at work that's hurting, that you know is hurting, you just kind of keep bypassing them. That person on your street, that person in your own family, maybe extended family, who needs to receive true love from you 
this week. Because Jesus, what he's saying is, you know what? It's not enough to know the right thing to do. You got to put it into action and you got to do it. So who needs to receive true love from you this week? Because friends, it is time for us as a church to rise up. To rise up and take the call that Christ has given to us. To show love radically to others. And so let's make this song our prayer. And then let's go out these doors in just a few moments and look for opportunities all around us because each one of us here has been called to be that good Samaritan. Let's pray. Let's worship. And let's serve. Would you stand with us? We are the